Welcome to The Impossible Network, a podcast about the stories of ordinary people living extraordinary lives. People who've broken through obstacles, fearlessly exceeded the boundaries society sets, taking the chances, regardless of risk, that most fear in pursuit of their mission, vision or goals. Each week we explore how their impossible became possible, how their upbringing affected them, how creativity fueled them and how serendipity guided them. I think serendipity has been probably the most significant driver of this growth. And I would say that you can't have serendipity. Well, you can have serendipity on its own, but actually you need serendipity to be paired with trust of your own intuition. At age 10, Michael Ventura told his parents he wanted to be an ideas man. Arguably, that was the moment that defined his course and set him on his impossible journey to change brands, organizations, and someday, even society. Through the design-led thinking of his Manhattan-based studio, Sabrosa, an applied empathy platform they have developed, Michael is certainly an ideas man with a problem-solving mission. Now shared with the world through the pages of his recently released book, practical guides, card sets, and many public appearances, Michael's revolutionary applied empathy platform is available to anyone with a desire to improve design solutions, spark innovation, bring new ideas to life, and solve tough challenges both inside organizations and across our wider society. In this episode, Michael discusses his journey, its serendipitous moments, he shares his many insights and offers advice to others who wish to problem-solve through empathy. I hope you enjoy this expansive discussion with Michael Ventura. Well, thank you for being on the Impossible Network, Michael. It's great to see you again. Yeah, uh, great to see you too. Uh, I think we first met back in 2014 when a mutual friend introduced me and recommended I come and speak to you about my niggling running injury. Um, and I uh, have to say, since then, that the little niggle hasn't been there. No, that's really good to hear. Which is fantastic. <laughs> so um, uh, what I like to do with um, all the guests in the Impossible Network is really just start with your upbringing and yeah. your background, and particularly how that upbringing has, you felt, has influenced or impacted on your journey and where you are today. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that's a, it's a good place to start because it's where I started. Um, I grew up about 15 minutes outside of New York City and had a uh, childhood that was very exploratory, I would say. My parents were very open to letting me try things and and experiment with things. So whether that was musical instruments or different sports or different types of technology as it became available, uh, you know, it was always encouraged. And my father was the second generation of a family business, so there was entrepreneurship running in the house, household. Um, and, and in your blood. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and quite in my blood. And it was, it was interesting to see how his life was always very balanced between family and work and that he never put one in front of the other and that they were both really important to him and one sort of fed the other in many ways. My mother, on the other hand, was an a educator and a child psychologist and developer and one of the things that we actually uh spent a lot of time talking about was sort of the the way kids minds work because that was actually her job Mm -hmm. and so I got to understand from her a bit more about how she thinks about children and she primarily worked in sort of guidance programs and social work inside schools helping kids kind of work through challenges and problems and so interestingly as I look back over those two role models and I look at the Venn diagram I'm an entrepreneur who helps people work through problems and yeah, so, it's, so it's really so, interesting the mental <laughs> models were being hardwired into you at that yeah, early stage very much that's so. fascinating what about siblings I have a sister she's uh, she's two years younger than I am um, she is a really voracious uh, problem solver in her own right but in a very different way she's a math major uh, I'm not even close to a math major. I have a hard time calculating the tip on a check usually. Um, but she's, she's someone who has a, one of those beautiful minds like that she can really think and use um, science and math in an interesting way, but also was an art history minor. And so she yeah. can kind of dip into and you know, is a calligrapher on the side because she loves that sort of style of, of, of writing and, and artwork. Um, so she's, she's kind of an interesting character in her own right. And what about your father? Was he a problem solver? I mean, obviously being yeah. an entrepreneur and... and, and yeah, more cause... on the engineering side, I would say. You know, the family business is actually a... Uh, it started in the uh, Prohibition era as a uh, kerosene and yeah, I, uh, I and like a, 
uh, ice delivery business, and then it evolved into uh, like home heating and fuel. And so my dad's business was really helping a providing service. I think because that was it, it is first and foremost a service business, and secondly electronically and engineeringly fixing problems inside, you know, these big machine systems. An interview I heard with Daniel Eck, where he talked about how his mother gave him the security and the self-belief to do anything that he felt anything was, anything was possible. Mm -hmm. Between your father and your mother, obviously they're both defining influences. Which one had the greater influence do you believe in terms of defining who you are today? It's mm, a good question. It's pretty even. I know that sounds like a cop-out, um, but it, 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 I am pretty balanced across both of them. I think my mother is definitely the more um, feeling and sensing side of me. Um, she's very empathic. She's very intuitive. She is uh, probably almost to a fault um, able to feel and sense people um, and, and kind of uh, sometimes gets a little heavy for her. So that's a part of me too. Uh, and she was also the one who I think was excited for me to be brave and was encouraging of that. My father was in the inverse, um, someone who taught me about stability, someone who taught me about um, making sure you think about choices before you make them, gave me uh, a good male role model, which in this world and in this time um, we need more of. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, you know, he really was someone who taught me about respect and talked to me about dig dignity and talked to me about um, good manners and all of those sorts of things that ultimately, uh, I think, really imprinted on me a, uh, a sense of sort of a soft masculine touch. So would it be fair to say that your father um, injected the ethics and your mother the empathy? Yeah, that sounds like a good yeah. fair point. Okay. Yeah. I was asked this recently. I'm just going off at a slight tangent here because I was asked um, in another um, interview right back at me, what was the most defining moment of my childhood? Mm. And that really got me thinking. And I answered and then went back and re-examined that. I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but in your book where you, I think in chapter one or two, you talked about how at age 10, you said to your parents, you wanted to be an ideas man, which yes. is brilliant. Thinking back to wherever that came from yeah, in the knows? ether, it's, it's bizarre. But I took that out as probably being quite an, an important defining moment of your childhood. But was there anything else? Well, what's interesting about that is um, I didn't remember I said that, and my parents reminded me of it maybe 15 years later. So it was, uh, it probably was subconsciously, but not consciously. For me, the first thing that came to mind when you said that was actually, so I grew up playing sports, and sports were a big part of my life, a big part of my life with my dad, too. And there was a day we were probably, I don't know, I would guess I was probably around 13 years old and we were playing basketball at the at the court near our house and I beat him for the first time and I came home that night and I cried and I was so sad that I beat my dad and they didn't know why I was crying and then he walked in and he said why are you crying and I explained it and he said that's the point like w w parents want you to be better than us and like that's a good thing always beat me what were you playing? Basketball. And basketball. So yeah. on, a, on a, just a one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, one-on-one -on -one basketball. Right, so yeah, that. and I just like, you know, I beat him. I had more, you know, had more points than he did at the end of the game. And how did you react once he said that to you? Did, I was very confused. Yeah. I mean, that's a confusing, yeah, 13. as a 13-year-old kid, yeah. I was like, wait a minute, but my dad is this hero yeah. and this like guy that like is infallible. Um, and, uh, and it was really interesting for him to be so... Uh, clear-minded about that and to just say no 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 you don't get it like that's we want you to be better than us that's mm -hmm. the point of being a parent that's brilliant skip forward 10 years so i think you went to I don't, i'm not quite sure what you did study uh, i went to babson which is a business school it's a I think probably for the past maybe almost 20 years it's the it's been rated the number one entrepreneurial program in ah. the in the country so it I was actually recruited there to play basketball. I ultimately didn't after the first semester because it wasn't uh, as much as I was excited about doing anymore. But the Babson program, half your load is liberal arts, and the other half is for the first two years, you're taking everything. You're taking accounting, you're taking finance, you're taking operations, you're taking marketing. And after two years, you can start to build concentration. So I came out with a really good, well-rounded business education uh, as a you know 21-year-old. But wanting with an ambition to go and be a management consultant or working? I did. I thought that like that the idea of being someone who was at like a Bain or a Booz or a McKinsey was was interesting to me because it was problem solving, mm -hmm. and I didn't know if I 
could just like launch right out and start my own business. This wasn't at a time when like startups were certainly as ubiquitous mm. as they are now. Certainly not on the West, on the East Coast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was also in the um, the post bubble burst, right? It was 2002. Mm. So I was in this era where like job security was really job one coming out. So you um, you worked a couple of jobs, then I was laid off, mm-hmm. and then you took that leap. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was it was literally one job. I had I had one job at an agency, who uh, focused on high net worth financial services advertising clients. So it was pretty dry, but I had this versatile role because it was about a forty person shop, and I could bounce around between strategy and creative and production and kind of get a sense of the whole business. I was sort of a utility player, and then they went through a, a round of layoffs. I was laid off, and. I called my folks and I had a friend at the time who was working at Lehman Brothers, rest in peace. And, uh, and we were talking about um, what we both wanted to do with our lives. And because he was withering and dying on the vine there because Lehman Brothers was already tipping towards its demise and he could kind of sense it. And he was a software engineer. And he said, you know, I, I just kind of want to go make websites and like design and build stuff. And I said, that's kind of what I do too. And so we started on nights and weekends going out and networking as best we could, you know, finding people who would take a meeting with us and we would go and talk and explain what we did. And, uh, this was in the era when everyone wanted a flash website. Of course. <laughs> and so we started making flash websites for people and at, after, and I had been doing it kind of on the slide. My parents didn't know exactly what I was doing. And after a few, probably about two months of doing it, I said to them, you know, I think I want to try to start something. And I was worried because I thought that they would say, well, it's going to be really hard or you're going to have to like make sure that you get a job because you, you need the security and so on and so forth. And they said something very different. They said, look, you're 23 years old. You don't have a family. You don't have a home. You're paying a mortgage on. Uh, if you're ever going to take a risk, now's the time. So go for it. And we'll make sure there's, you know some food in your refrigerator and if you need a, a quick loan for your rent payment because you're behind we'll cover it for a little while but if you know in nine or ten months this thing isn't getting you where you need to go you're probably gonna have to look for a job mm-hmm. and so they gave me just enough of a cushion to make me feel confident enough to really leap out and try it in a way your both your parents were uh, giving you that sense of self-belief at another critical time in your life and that you were so ready to progress and yeah. move on and take on the family legacy of entrepreneurship. Yeah, it was interesting. They, um, over the years... Did they, they have that hope for you? Did they ever have they ever talked about that? About... That, that, did they have this expectation? I mean, obviously, you went down the route of going to uh, university, mm-hmm. good school. Did they have this um, desire and, a, and, a, and a, an expectation or a hope that you would move into uh, entrepreneurship and create no. your own business? No, they really didn't care what I did as long as I was happy. And, um, actually my dad had a conversation with me at one point in my high school age where he said, um, the family business is here if you want it, but I don't think that's really what you should pursue. He said when he was a kid and coming out of university, his father, uh, was not his, he didn't really pressure him to do it, but my father felt pressure to do it and forwent pursuing what he actually wanted to do, which was aviation engineering mm-hmm. and, uh, and went into the family business because it was the right thing to do. My grandfather had built it and wanted to see someone take it over. My uncle was looking for work and was four years younger than my dad. And my dad was sort of like, if I take this on, then my dad will be happy. My brother will be secure. This is the right decision to do. And so he did it. And I think he's happy he did it, but I think there's always been a little bit of, I wonder what the other road would have been like. And he didn't want me to feel like I had any obligation to the family business going up. Interesting. But I suppose it was a generational sort of that, that time. Yeah, it was much more well. common yeah. to do that. Just going to jump back because you do, you, you do fall in that interesting spectrum between gen, uh, Generation X mm-hmm. and Millennials. Yes. Where you grew up with without really sort of technology but then became embedded with computers and, and early coding yeah and it's probably a, a quite an unusual it probably should have a, a a defining name in its own right yeah there is a, there are a couple generational theorists who have talked about this and there are a couple opinions on it some people call it gen y some people call it zennials which i think is the worst yeah. name ever yeah. um but i've often referred to it as the bridge generation mm-hmm. and what i mean by that is 
demographically speaking, there is an enormous number of boomers and Gen Xers. It is a, it is a big cross-section of humanity. There is equally an enormous number of millennials. And Gen Y, or, or the bridge generation, or whatever you want to call it, is generally speaking from 78 to 84 is mm-hmm. the sort of window. And it's a small by demographic population. And what's interesting about it is we were born analog. And I remember doing homework with encyclopedias and, you know, flipping through pages of thesauruses and dictionaries, looking for words and, you know, working in a very analog way. And I remember my first typing class being on a typewriter and then getting a word processor and then getting a computer at the house and getting a computer class in school. And we were the recipients of the first, the really the, the, the version 1.0 of digital education, right? And most of my friends who are just five, six, seven years older than me encountered technology at the tail end of university or post-university for the first time. And maybe they had an email address or something like that, but it wasn't really like taught to them. They had to be self-taught. And we were the first class that were actually educated with it. And so I call it the bridge generation because I think for me, millennials are born digital and have a very different mindset as a result, right? They think everything uh, can be and is customizable, Mm -hmm. right? Because that is the world we live in today, right? It's not their fault. It's actually a, a gift that they can have the world delivered to them at their own choosing in terms of like the, the different calibration of these are the apps I want and these are the things I want to pay attention to and fee- serve me this news and follow these people and unfollow those people. And we, in this weird little middle generation, often have to play the role inside organizations as translator between mm-hmm. those two because often the leadership, who are the older folks by, by and large, um, don't totally understand the psyche of the millennial and vice versa. And we have this interesting role to often translate for the two and try to meet in the middle. So that's obviously been valuable in terms of the role you've played as leader and founder of Sub Rosa Mm -hmm. and helping clients sort of navigate transformation, although that's not core to how you position or sell Sub Rosa, but it must be a a key part, a key component in terms of helping them navigate new paths. Yeah, and interestingly, we have, not intentionally, but we have often been our most successful when that when that is a component of the problem Mm -hmm. like we don't go seeking that out but we tend to find problems where there is a a psychographic divide that needs bridging in some way and particularly on our culture and capability work that we'll do internally at a Mm -hmm. company when they're struggling to figure out how to how to move past something because your the work you did with pantone springs to mind Mm -hmm. in that so would that be a good example of where yeah i think bridging exercise worked very effectively for sure um so the the with pantone it was interesting because they were in their 49th year of business they really i think had lost their way and i think they would say that too if we asked them they came to us and we sat around a table and we said how do you describe the business and they all uniformly the head of communications the head of marketing general manager for the business everybody all said we're an ink and chemical company and everyone on our side of the table was devastated to hear that, as you might imagine. <laughs> as designers, as designers course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could like hear the forehead slaps across the room. And, and we said, no, you're not. Your inspiration, your color, your design, your, your all of these things. And they were like, well, yeah, but like we make ink and chemicals. Mm-hmm. And we said, you make inspiration. Like that's that you, you are a tool for designers to realize an idea. And so we had to help them really start to translate that legacy business into a future that was more attuned to the audiences that were working with them because people print less and less every year. It's not like the making of inks and dyes is a long-term sustainable business. They had to start to think about what does color mean as a, uh, as a partner to a designer and what is color intelligence and how do we use color intelligence to inform decision-making and how do we use color intelligence to, um, design products that are more desirable and things like that. So it really started to shift from a product business to a service business as we worked through that together. Ah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole sort of transformation, I think the company you formed initially was called Seed. Yes. And then you you changed it around 2009 yep. after the crash to Sub Rosa. I mean, it has been sort of a, a quite an interesting journey when you, when you go back to your 10-year-old self and wanting to be an idea man and then looking at where the business is now. I mean, when I first started 
um, reading and listening to some of your other interviews, the words that came to me were, you're, because I've obviously been healed by you, mm-hmm. that you're a healer of businesses. But I think you describe yourself uh, more specifically as a problem solver with empathy. Yeah, that, that, is, that is what I would say. And I would also say that you healed yourself. Um, what, we, what we did and what I think we do well in, in the boardroom and what we do well when someone gets on the table with me is I'm really good at using empathy to feel into where the problem lies. And once you remove the problem or raise awareness for the problem, the, the person who has the problem often is able to fix it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a, there's a great quote that I read recently that I don't have my, my phone on me, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it, which was essentially um, the quote unquote healer's gift is actually just having the confidence and the belief in the uh, healing power of an individual to heal themselves. And when someone gets on the table, as long as you hold that space, they can do what they need to do to get better. And that's true in a conference room too. Mm. If you give leaders the right information, the right confidence, the right plan, the right support, then they will course correct their businesses time and again. That's a really interesting perspective. I've never really thought about consulting and creativity in, in that context. Yeah. It's an unusual way of... Well, it's actually been the only thing that's kept me sane because um, I, there was a period of time where I was treating 10, 15 people a week in the alternative medicine that I do, but then also uh, running Subrosa and... I was running ragged and my system was at its most depleted. This is probably 2005, six, seven when I was, is this before your back injury? This was when it occurred essentially. Like I had been going through all of that and then, uh, had insomnia was taking more drugs than I probably should have. Um, I was, you know, doing all the things I could to numb myself away from this pain and this stress. And one day I was changing the water cooler and herniated three discs in my lumbar spine dropped to the floor, could barely walk went to the hospital. They said they wanted to put rods in my back and fuse my discs and do all these crazy things. And I said, that doesn't sound great for a 25 year old. And so, uh, tried on a recommendation of a friend acupuncture and it gave me like this little crack in the door that was like, maybe there's something there. And I went back and then the second time it felt a little better. And then the third time a little better. And then the fourth time he said, do you meditate or do you do anything to manage stress? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, you should try. I said, yeah, I know, but I can't sit still and it stresses me out. And like my mind's always going. He said, well, try Tai Chi. It's moving meditation. It's a different thing. It's going to give you something else to do. So I tried that. And within six months of continuing to practice that, going to acupuncture, um, getting cleaner with my body, um, the back pain went away. And I actually didn't ever have to have surgery. And that, to me, was such a profound lesson in our ability to heal ourselves, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and to use that... Holistically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And to use that as a, as a teaching that parlayed into Subrosa or then seed of ultimately became Subrosa. Which when was, did that become a conscious part of the way you th- were thinking about Subrosa? I think r- right then. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I realized there and then that this was the ability for an individual to shift their behavior and their mindset can truly alter their physicality. Um, and businesses are physical objects yeah. too, right? And they're made up of people, made yeah, up of people so component parts. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, how has serendipity played its part along this journey? I mean, because it has been an unusual sort of course you've yeah. followed. I think serendipity has been the probably the most significant driver of this growth. And I would say that you can't have serendipity. Well, you can have serendipity on its own, but actually you need serendipity to be paired with trust of your own intuition, right? Because the, the serendipitous fork in the road may occur and you may not take it because you don't trust or believe in your own intuition. And I had a, I had a spiritual teacher at one time who told me, uh, the mind tries to make sense out of everything. That's what the mind does. It will, it will work a problem and it will try to make sense out of everything. And then she stuck her finger in my navel and she said this, is sense. She goes, this doesn't make anything. It just is. Uh And she said, how many times have you made a decision from here and been wrong? I said, none. She goes, how many times has your mind been wrong? And I laughed and she said, yeah, exactly. So when you hit those forks in the road, when serendipity presents you with something, don't let your mind make the choice, get quiet, get still. And what does your gut tell you to do? 
just a matter of interest, how do you how do you transform that into the actual um, situation where you're dealing with clients to get them to embrace their mm-hmm. corporate gut? Right. It's a good question. I would say empathy is probably the proxy for that because when you are in your head rationalizing and post-rationalizing things the whole time, you can, you can rationalize anything. You can rationalize yourself into any decision. You can, you know, good leaders are often good uh, rationalizers in many ways. But when you put data on the table that points to other people's point of views, right? So if you're sitting across the table from a CEO and you say, what do you want to do? We're giving you these three choices. They're going to pick what they want. But if you say, what do you want to do? Here are three choices, and here's why these three choices occurred. We spoke to this group of consumers, and they said this is what they really want, and this is how they see you, and this is how you think you see them, and so on and so on across all three. Well, now what they're actually doing is having to feel into those other people. They're going to have to get out of their head. They're going to have to quiet that inner monologue and perspective take to get that deeper understanding. And that is empathy, right? That perspective taking, that stepping out of your own shoes and seeing the world from someone else's. And so you can't, if you go into those other shoes with your brain, you're going to bring bias into that that is going to cloud that perspective. Mm -hmm. So really, I think what we've tried to do in our work is use empathy as an evidence-based design thinking tool to Mm -hmm. say, hey, we've talked with these people. We understand this about them. This is what they want. If you want to go in a different direction, that's fine. That's your prerogative, but you're going against the insights of these audiences. It's interesting you use the term design thinking, and that seems to be core of what you do, but you've created this umbrella uh, that gathers that more rational side of uh, delivering design thinking under the, this umbrella of applied empathy. Can you talk to me about the, the applied element of it and what marks Subrosa out as different in terms of your model? And I know you've got your, mm-hmm. your, I think it's the seven archetypes that you have, but just to try and deconstruct that a little bit more. For sure. Yeah. So empathy unto itself is passive. Mm-hmm. I could understand a lot about you and do nothing with it. And so in, it is only in the application of empathy that you can affect change. So the applied is so critical to the way we think about it because otherwise it's just information. It's not being acted upon. The process that we've undertaken really looks at trying to create a system model for eliciting understanding. So human-centered design often puts, typically puts, the uh, end consumer in mind or the end recipient in mind and then designs for that person or that group of people. That for us is a leg of a stool, but not the entire stool. And that's why we we look at our design thinking approach a bit more ecosystemically. And there's no right or wrong. There are plenty of great ways of designing purely for the end user and being successful. But in our work, we have to take the end user, but we also have to take a whole other constituent group of folks in mind as we design for that. So that includes, I mean, typically our process starts with this three circle Venn diagram, right? And the first circle is the company. Who's our client? What makes them tick? What's their mission, vision, values? Who, what kind of people work here? What do they care about? What are their products? Are they good or are they bad, right? You know, all of that sort of stuff. The second is the consumer. And we don't just mean the end consumer, which is important. And often there are many end consumer archetypes, but then also who else consumes information from this company? That might be current employees, might be mm-hmm. prospective new employees, might be the media, shareholders, board, whatever. What do they all want? Because I guarantee you, they don't all want exactly the same thing from them, right? The, a reporter from the Financial Times and a potential new employee and, uh, and the chairman probably want 70% of the same information, but 30% is going to have to be bespoke to them if you want to really empathically connect. So figuring all of that out. And then the third circle is context. And we think about what's happening in the world around us, what's happening that's that's affecting those consumers and that company that we should be paying attention to. And that might be as, as near as a competitor. It might be a little further removed as an indirect competitor, someone who's vying for attention but not necessarily making the same products. Uh, it might be a trend like internet of things or future of cities or something like that, that's going to impact their business in the long run. And so we bear all of those things in mind and the intersection point of those three things where that sweet spot in the middle is, that's where the gold is. Mm-hmm. We talked about the, uh, the work for Pantone 
I mean, other, can you give me an example of a project, whether it be for one of your other clients, General Electric or mm-hmm. Nike or anyone else, that, that exemplifies that approach? Yeah, sure. So uh, a quick one, that because these could go on forever, but yeah, a, course, a, yeah. good, a good yeah. quick one is a furniture brand we've been speaking to recently. I was sitting with the CEO, and we were talking about how they're a billion-dollar business, and they want to get to a $2 billion business in the next few years. And so if just taking that one data point and say that's the company, sort of big objective, right? There's a bunch of stuff underneath it, but call that the, the, the main point of the conversation. And so I said, well, what keeps you up at night? What do you think you're going to have to do in order to do that? Or what are you worried about? He said, well, I'm worried about our competitors. You know, I think Ikea is doing some interesting things. And, you know, he listed a couple other furniture brands. And I said, well, I think you're really missing a, a, a lot of the equation by talking about it that way. And he said, why? And I said, well, that sense of awareness is what got you from zero to 1 billion. But I don't think beating Ikea more is what's going to get you to 2 billion. I said, you have to put yourself into the shoes of these consumers. When a young couple gets their first apartment together, they don't have a couch budget. They have a budget, right? So when they walk in the house, they're not saying, what's the difference between this couch, this couch, this couch? They're saying, should we get a new couch? Should we use that old couch we have and maybe get a, a, a new Sonos system? Or, you know, now that we've got this nice kitchen, maybe we'll get a meal delivery kit system and we'll start cooking at home more. We'll get a subscription to Blue Apron or something, right? Your biggest competitors in this next chapter are going to be them because the context is different, right? Moving into that sea, right? The, 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 the zeitgeist for the, the way the world operates is not couch to couch. And it's not your direct competitors, it's going to be your indirect competitors that are going to be your biggest challenge to get from one to two billion. And he took a big sigh after that. And he's like, oh, shit, we got work to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, fortunately, Blue Apron isn't that popular at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So he's exactly. on the right track. I was listening to a podcast with actually it was, it was at um, Neuhaus where yeah. members there. And I saw Beth Comstock being interviewed about her new book, mm-hmm. Imagine It Forward. And there was something I think she mentions that, that we're all obviously hardwired to flee ambiguity, chaos, and the unknown. And I just want to broaden the context beyond business and applied empathy and mm-hmm. sort of layer in, link it to what she said around that. If we sort of see we're living in this really unusual inflection point at the moment in society where we're faced with polarization and politics, the whole identity politics movement, which seems to be driven by fear. Fear of change, fear of, as Beth says, the ambiguity, the chaos, the unknown that's happening to us in this massive transformative society, whether it be the march of artificial intelligence or machine learning. How important is it to take your principles of applied empathy, and I know you have your card system Mm -hmm. and your models, and take it beyond business and try and extend it into education because it feels like it's a, it's a model that needs to be embraced to help people navigate this. This because it is fear that we're we're facing. Fear must be is essentially the enemy of what you're what you're doing, both in business and both in the broader society. Yeah, we f- we fear what we don't understand, right? And empathy is a tool for understanding. So you're you're spot on. Um, we think about that a lot. And actually, Beth Beth is a really good friend. We uh, she lives around the corner from me, and we. Um, I, I was about four months in front of her book schedule. So we would have our like book bitch <laughs> sessions where we'd sit together and talk about. You can talk the, about that, but yeah. you can't talk about this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so we've talked about that before. And I think one of the things that's interesting is it goes back to a couple of things we've talked about earlier. There is this older generation that is moving out of their seats of power just by virtue of getting older. Mm-hmm. And there is this, what I hope in the optimistic sense, uh, because I can't help but be an optimist is, uh, this last gasp of air that is being taken by this old guard that doesn't want to change or that wants to see things the way they used to be, but it is desperate and flailing despite its impact that we're all feeling in this day and age. Mm -hmm. And I think what it is doing is it's actually pushing a sense of fresh air and audaciousness into a younger generation. And you can look at, you know, even the most recent election where in here in the States, we've got, you know, uh, the youngest crop and the most diverse crop of democratic candidates that have been elected in probably in, in history. 
It's because that that last gasp of air has encouraged them to sort of step up and say, we can do better. To your point about should empathy exist outside of business, yes. And the the reason why, aside from its commercial obvious reason why we do work with corporate clients, is that when those corporate clients leave, they're people just like you and I. And our belief was always that corporations are a they're the most influential things in a capitalistic society right so if you can affect an organization's behavior you can you can affect people at scale right you work with an organization that's got 500,000 employees that's a really impactful thing if you make that organization more conscious more aware more willing to be empathic you're going to reach half a million people by virtue of the 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 structure that they operate in right so mm-hmm. if you change a corporate value to be about empathy and you change a remuneration structure or a performance evaluation system to put empathy into it. And then your peer reviews that you have when you get time for your, you know, your annual review and your peers say, yes, this person has exhibited a good sense of empathy. And that's a, and that's a factor in how you get promoted or bonused or, 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 uh, the next raise you want. That to me is the, the carrot and stick that we can play with a lot inside an organization to make that real. But yes, we have been working with the United Nations for the past few years, particularly on indigenous rights, resources, and people, and helping use uh, empathy as a tool to help them tell their story more effectively. We've been training tribal leaders to get on the floor of the United Nations and actually understand different ways of using communication tools to elicit emotion in the, in the listeners on the, on the floor of the general assembly so that when they have their three minutes to plead their case for protecting the Amazon or, um, something related, they will be able to do so in a way that will hopefully affect change in the policymakers. Um, we worked with the Obama administration for 18 months in the last 18 months of their administration doing the same thing, um, particularly around indigenous rights as well, um, and looking at STEM education in Indian country, looking at ways we can get connectivity to our native lands and to make sure that these kids who are growing up in what are some of the worst conditions in the country uh, are going to have a shot at actually being part of the workforce and have a livelihood and be able to support their families and grow. So we're starting to see empathy get pulled there. Actually, we're working internally on a project right now to start to um, build a, a real accreditation and training program to um, train more people to be using this approach in one-on-one coaching, in educational institutions, in a whole host of things. It's really funny. On the way here on the subway, um, I've just turned over, looked over my shoulder, and there's a woman reading a book called The Empathy Exams. Oh, really? I'll have to <laughs> check thought, it out. Is that another book by Michael? But it, <laughs> it wasn't, I checked it. But it's interesting that there's the, obviously the language is being embraced. Yeah. And it's getting away from sort of the generation that's trying to hold on to power, and also in business as well. Yeah. That worked with a very different paradigm in terms of planning and decision making. It was all, it wasn't gut feel, it was all rational, the old sort of general electric model. Right. To use sort of, you know, Beth Comstock's old company. Exactly. I mean, I think the, sort of the, the, the ways of, not even Immelt, but um, Jack Welch. Jack Welch's yeah. way wouldn't really work in today's world. Right. There has to be a different model. I just wanted to jump in. You mentioned diversity and inclusion. How does that af- apply here? Mm hmm. Presumably, it's not a conscious policy in Subrosa because of the very nature of how you think about people and building teams. Right. We, yeah, I mean, I think we are, we're a pretty self-aware group as it pertains to diversity and inclusion for our own team. Um, and that doesn't just mean gender or uh, race or ethnicity. It also means um, cognitive diversity for us and really making sure that we aren't just getting high on our own supply with a bunch of people who all think the same way. Like we want to have a, a truly diverse set of backgrounds, set of uh, upbringings, set of thinking so that we can solve problems as well-roundedly as possible. We're getting pulled into quite a few organizations at present. Um, we're actively running three different projects uh, inside large multinationals, uh, specifically focused around diversity and inclusion, because in the wake of the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and all of these other things, what we have come to find and what these organizations have come to find is that as storytellers, right, because every organization is telling their story, um, to they have a responsibility to their team and to the world to be more inclusive and to to include the voices of those that they may not 
ordinarily uh, that may not be able to speak for themselves, right? So uh, our work on the DNI side is really about helping organizations spot their own blind spots and then build a plan to adjust it appropriately and be that gender or race or cognitive. Hmm. So it's, it's, again, it's another example of you having an impact and being played forward in organizations. Yeah. Just something that I, I meant to mention when you were talking about this, sort of the holding on to the vestiges of power, this sort of previous generation, we were um, watching uh, Seth Godin speak mm-hmm. uh, recently at an, an, an Acumen event where he's one of the board members. He had this great phrase. He said, forget about you being the resistance. You are not the resistance. The resistance are the people in power. They're resisting change. You're the trend. Yeah. And that's the way you need to think about this. I love because, that. And I thought that just summed up brilliantly the, the, this, transform, uh, this transformation we're going through at the moment. Yeah. And I just hope that obviously we can sort of avoid anything cataclysmic happening in these, uh, this defining maybe next 10 years. Yeah. These, I mean, this is truly, I mean, I, I have to imagine that every major generational shift has felt like their generation was on the precipice of, of it all being over but this one feels really fucking real yeah. and um and you know the if, if i think back to the the greatest generation right as tom brokaw calls them <laughs> um you know we were in we were engaged in global nuclear war right like yeah. that must have been terrifying for everybody and the thought of you know i mean that was when you know you, you had your rations and your bomb shelters and it was like we might live underground for six months if a bomb explodes here like i mean that zeitgeist and the way people had to go through their lives in the unknown of that is probably not psychologically as dissimilar as what we're going through mm-hmm. i think that the, the the problems we're facing are different with climate change with uh, you know, the, these, these, uh, terrible regimes that are taking power all around the world with, you know, all of the, all of the issues that we face contemporarily, but psychologically and emotionally, we're probably going through the same trauma mm-hmm. and the same fear and the same, uh, sleepless nights. There's almost two sides There's the, the past, the existence of this power base that's mm-hmm. trying to resist change. But then there's this, the change that's coming that isn't necessarily um, utopian. Right. I mean, there is a dystopian sort of sense, of leaving aside the impact and the, and the fear we all have about cataclysmic um, right. uh, existential threats from climate change. There's the artificial intelligence change. How do mm-hmm. you, from a... Because you talked about um, some of the facets of applied empathy. And you talked about trust and trusting in yourself. What's your view on creativity? And the importance of curiosity and creativity in terms of helping us have belief in ourselves in, a, in an uncertain future mm-hmm. that could be quite dystopian yeah. if artificial intelligence takes us down the wrong route. I mean, it is, it is probably one of the most innately human characteristics, the ability to have a, a, a creativity and creative thought. And we've, we've been putting our toe in the water of AI with a couple clients because they have reached out to us to say, Hey, we are working on this and we want to see if we can build empathy into AI, Mm -hmm. right? Which is an interesting question and also a terrifying one at the same time. And one of the things that, that we've started to become aware of is these machines are all being programmed by people, right? And they're being given constraints that they have to operate within at this point that are being programmed by individuals. So as long as individuals are not nefarious or are, you know, are building these things with, with the right approach, hopefully we keep some guardrails in place. Now, when you start to get into machine learning and deep learning and where computers can write, rewrite their own Mm. programming and start to change things, some of the tests are terrifying. Like there are, there are, there's a, I can't remember what the name of the test is, but there's one right now where Two, um, two computers are being asked to perform the same task. It's like collecting apples. You can Google it. And, uh, and, and they get incentivized in the first round of the game but by collaboration, right? If you both end up with the same amount of apples, you win. And then the rules change and it says whoever has the most apples win. And then they start cheating and they start actually manipulating each other in the game. And that is a terrifying thing that wasn't programmed in, but that the machine learned if I, if I have to win, then mm-hmm. I must cheat at all odds and uh, at yeah, all odds. Yeah. And that just, you know, is, is, a, is a, is a very frightening slippery slope that we are on the precipice of. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 
what, how, what would your advice be to anyone that's uh, entering the workforce now? <laughs> Remember your humanity, because I think that that is, it's, it's really compelling and it's really uh, gratifying to probably go down the rabbit hole of the hottest topic in technology and spend your and be the expert in machine learning and be the expert in artificial intelligence and really kind of go down that rabbit hole um but if we do that without a sense of our own humanity and why we're doing it Mm -hmm. and what the important things that have made us human and made us coexist for a long while um, if we lose sight of those and we just pursue technology for technology's sake and advancement for advancement's sake, uh, we are, we're destined to fail as humans. I think really the, the most important thing for me will be, can this next generation think more like there's, a, there's an indigenous uh, belief uh, in Native American culture uh, about seven generations, which is, you know, if you make any decision today, you have to consider seven generations forward. Um, I would hope our best and brightest technologists are thinking about that too. I hope so. Can we finish off with some quick fire questions? Sure. Sure. Um, what principles do you stand by? Integrity, selflessness, and bravery. They're good. I, I like bravery. Is that something, I, I know we're saying quick fire questions, but bravery is something that is banded around a lot by agencies about brands have mm-hmm. to be brave. How do you inject bravery? How do you check it? How do you inject Oh, how do you inject it? it? How do you um, encourage I would say... Bravery? Because it's, it, we, we've talked about fear. Yeah. And we're living in probably the most fearful times. And, right. And when you're dealing, and we're probably coming into a, a period where the financial markets might be approaching a, a precipice as well. Right where obviously fear is going to be increased even further. Mm-hmm. I mean, bravery might not be in a pre- at a premium. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a fine line between bravery and being foolhardy also, mm-hmm. right? And I think for me, bravery is the integrity to do what is um, morally right in, in a moment uh, where it might be easier to not. Great definition. Okay, back to the questions. Uh, what hard choices have you had to make um, that might have been very tough but turned out to be the right decision in the end? I mean, the hardest thing as a business person that I think we always have to do is to let people go. To me, like that is, you know, we invest in people, we invest in their time. And I, and there are, I guarantee you plenty of people who have worked here who may not have had a great experience. And there are plenty of people who have worked here who have. And I think that that is the virtue of, you know, being somewhere as long as I have, right? This is all I've done in 16 years. You know, the list of people who have worked at Sub Rosa is always going to be longer than the list of people that do work at Sub Rosa. And so as a result of that, you know, I think I look back in the wake of people who have come through these doors and uh, and I regret some of the ways I led the organization because I was learning how to lead and still am today. And I I can only look out the rear of the, the windshield and the rearview mirror is smaller for a reason. Right. Um, so we have to kind of stay focused on the road ahead. Um, but I think, you know, one of the big one of the big things I often think about is, you know, could I have learned that lesson sooner? And what would that have done for the lives of folks that worked here? OK. Where do you go to discover your new ideas? Solitude. I know it's not a place, but it's a place in my mind. Um, I'm not someone who, I think a lot of creatives like a lot of stimulation in order to get ideas. I like quiet and being in a nice quiet place that could be meditating by myself. That could be in the shower, right? Mm-hmm. Like wherever like that white noise and that sense of nothingness is, Which that's is hard usually, to find these days. Yeah. yeah. Shower is actually one of the reliable places. Um, that's, that's usually when my best ideas come to bear. Mm-hmm. Just make sure Alexa's not in that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So just, uh, avoiding technology. How do you keep up with technology? I'm not an early adopter. I just got off an iPhone six last week and everyone thinks I'm ridiculous for not racing into whatever the next and the new is, but I am a wait and see sort of person on that front. I mean, I'm always open to try stuff. You know, I was, I was playing with VR early in its days. I've played with AR. I'll always test it out once mm-hmm. or twice. Cause I want to get a sense of what it is and have a working knowledge of it and be able to explain it and understand it. Um, but I don't want to rush to adopt it. 
necessarily. But I suppose you have you can surround yourself with good technologists inside the company. Yeah, and we certainly do, and they and they are voracious consumers of all of that. But you know, for me personally, I think that um, I have to find that balance because once we become too reliant on technology, we lose our touch and feel, and and touch and feel is I think what makes me me. Okay, I'm going to come to. Um Almost at the end, um, we asked this question, um, the impossible question, that you've achieved um, extraordinary things in a short period of time from when you were 10, talking about being an ideas man, and you've certainly delivered that and beyond. What would your advice be to someone starting out their career now with maybe an ambition and a goal that seems impossible? How would you guide them? To give them confidence. I, I won't take credit for this quote, but it's a quote a friend's dad told me when we were starting the business. If you don't get into trouble, you'll never learn how to get out of it. That's great. And, <laughs> and I think that is the number one thing. I wish you, I could have fed that back to my mother when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> that ability to, and that is bravery, and that is intuition, and that is all of those things. When you take that step and take that leap and try something, even if you fail, you're going to learn something really meaningful in the process. Mm-hmm. That's a brilliant bit of advice. I think that sort of, um, is a life, lifelong advice and learning. Mm. Um, final two questions. We want to offer our listeners that come up with the best questions or best comments in the comment section a book mm-hmm. free that you would recommend that people read. Aside uh, from a play. Aside, yeah, well, aside, I mean, no, but no, we, will, we will give that one no, uh, no, to no, anyone. Teasing. But, uh, I think that the, the, one of the books that for me... It's one of the only books I've reread multiple times. My wife is a rereader. She'll reread books all the time. Um, I'm not. Um, but one that I've always found to be really rereadable is Siddhartha. Oh. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great story of, of learning and growth. Okay, thanks. And finally, who should we interview next? Mm. Beth Comstock. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll connect you guys. You yeah, no then. problem. That would be great. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate your time and um, some great insights and wisdom. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps us reach more people. Just go to iTunes, Acast, Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. Have a good week.